I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Do you remember how you found out that that he had died? Thorne had found out somehow, and Thorne let me know. This is Matthew McGill's brother, Richard. He was in San Francisco in 2015 when he heard Matthew had died. I think it was somebody from Woodbine. They had called. They had called, yeah. It was the Robertsons, Cliff and Elaine. You heard them in the first episode of this series. I mean, how did that make you feel? Were you surprised or? I wasn't surprised and I didn't care. Because by that time, Eric, I was, I was really detached. Yeah. He was blood by circumstance, but not by choice. You can just see that the different ways that he had ostracized himself or us from him. And, you know, at some point there's no, there's no connection. More than one person has said this to me. I say I'm doing a story about Dora Watkins or Matt McGill, and they say, why the hell would you want to do a story about him? <laughs> you, in fact, might have said that to me at one point. I can't remember. Yeah, yeah I think that that's where I started. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, and now knock yourself out. Yeah, yeah. And I guess, like, I'm the thing I'm, like, still sort of, like, working through is, like, why? Like, what was so bad about him that makes him like worthy of only just being forgotten I'll give you one reason if you don't take care of the responsibility of being a father and you abandon your children that's cause for me I haven't gotten into this yet, but Dora Watkins did, in fact, have two children, by a second wife. After he and Jenny O'Hara divorced in New York City, Dora moved south. He married a woman and had two daughters with her. There are lots of pictures of them in the box, and perhaps not surprisingly, they are all just truly beautiful people. But by the mid-80s, Dora left again. He all but abandoned them and moved to South Florida, where he met Cindy Day and ran his auto business. At first, he appears to have paid some child support and wrote letters, but before long, he stopped both. And it seems like, maybe, he didn't even send many of the letters he wrote. He became a ghost to his children. I just found that so despicable that I just (laughs) gave up hope after that. I just found that to be so sad. Now, if you wanted to, it would be a stretch to say, well, maybe he was doing them a favor. Mm Mm-hmm. And he only broke their hearts once, as opposed to multiple times. I don't think he had that. (laughs) I don't think that was part of his plan. Sure. He just moved on. I did reach out to one of Dora's daughters, and she did not want to speak with me, understandably. Her mother, Dora's second wife, died early in my reporting, so I never got a chance to speak with her. Dora's older brother, Thorne, who you've heard here, had some contact with that part of the family over the years but he died too, about a year after our interview.
Whenever I describe the series of events that led to me interviewing my family about our fraught relationships, I get tied up in knots because it isn't totally logical. I heard about a dead guy who had lived a crazy life. I got a box full of that dead guy's stuff, a box that revealed he was living under a fake name on the run from the government. I found everyone I could who knew the guy in the past, convinced there was something deeper and more meaningful going on with him. But then, each of those people, one after another, described how the guy had been bad to them. Bad enough that a lot of those people were a little relieved when he died. And it was that fact, not the story of this guy's wild life, but of how alone he was at the end, that led me to face some stuff I had been avoiding for years. So I went home to Florida to talk with my own family, who I was struggling to connect with. See what I mean? Whatever the path, I couldn't help but be struck by how wrecked Dor's relationships were, particularly with his own family. How, as Richard puts it, he ostracized himself. It felt a little too close to home. Oh, and this is just weird. Why is it weird? I've never been interviewed like this before. I probably will never be interviewed like this ever again. In 2019, I decided to sit down with my sister, Shannon, to talk about our relationship. For years, she had wanted me to interview her for something, anything really. I mean, you've been doing stories like this for how long? And this is the first time I've ever been asked to be included. <laughs> yeah, you've been asking for years. Mm-hmm. So I asked Shannon if we could talk. The thing is, Shannon and I actually get along really well. We've always really liked each other. Sometimes when visiting, we leave secret notes around each other's bedrooms to find later. I've got one scribbled on my whiteboard from 2013 I refused to erase. But even still, I knew we didn't really know each other, not in a super personal way. A guy I once interviewed referred to himself as a friend to strangers and a stranger to friends. That's how I felt with Shannon, a stranger to a friend. How does it feel now to actually be being interviewed? Do you regret? No, I'm excited. I'm You're happy. Ex- oh, really? I'm happy to exist in <laughs> this part of your life now. Oh, good. And to be honest, Shannon felt like low-hanging fruit, the easiest member of my family to get closer with. She told me, yes, she'd be happy to talk, finally. Though I don't think she totally understood what she was getting into. Okay, so let's start with an easy one. Uh, tell me your name and who you are. What do you mean, who I am? Like, to you? Or... Yeah, my name's Shannon, and I'm... Um... Buckle up, kid. It's the big leagues now. I don't know. I, <laughs> I like how you said, let's start with the easy stuff, and then... Yeah. <laughs> you're just making me have an existential crisis over here. I was like, who am I? What am I like? What's my personality? I'm Eric Mennel, and from Pineapple Street Studios, this is Stay Away From Matthew McGill. Part 5. Sister brother. Shannon's the baby of the family. She's 21 when I sit down to talk with her, nine years my junior, and seven years younger than my brother. She loves telling jokes. Do you know how to make an octopus laugh? You give it 10 tickles. She loves K-pop and has an incredible memory. She's still holding out for 50 bucks I apparently promised her when she was in first grade. I wanted to ask Shannon about my parents' divorce. It was the fundamental shift in our family dynamic in the last several years, and it seemed like an obvious starting point for any questions about the distance that had grown between all of us. When my parents split up, I was already in New York, an adult, and really nothing about my day-to-day life changed. 
It was a drama playing out while I wasn't around. But my sister was around. She was still in middle school. She shuttled back and forth between my parents' apartments a couple times a week. And I'd always assumed, by sheer proximity, the divorce was harder for her. Was there anything that felt different or strange? Um, like telling people was weird. But it still felt like pretty normal, yeah. As she tells it, Shannon wasn't all that bothered by the divorce. It was more just an annoying thing that happened. What was it like going back and forth between their places so much? It was kind of difficult. Mm-hmm. Mostly because like I had to carry so much stuff back and forth. Like I had to make sure I had certain things. Um, but it wasn't like terrible. Carrying stuff. That's what she remembered. Which surprised me. The divorce had upset me, and I knew Shannon had had a hard time as a teenager. I thought it was largely tied to this event, the one that seemed, from where I was in New York, to change her life pretty radically. And I say that because it was shortly after, when Shannon was in high school, that things got really hard for her. Do you remember the first time anyone used the word anxiety or social anxiety? Uh, Probably like 10th grade. Yeah. That's like kind of where it all started and where it kind of like reached its peak. What happened? Like someone very close to me died and there were some very like strong feelings that were attached to it. Are you open to talking about that? Yeah. Can you tell me what happened? Well, her name was Hillary and she was um, like the youth pastor at our church. This is a story I knew vaguely about, but had never actually discussed with anyone back home, including Shannon. Hillary was 27 when she started working at the church, and the kids really took to her. She had done a lot for us. She took us to Michigan in the winter because a lot of us had never seen snow before because we live in Florida. Mm-hmm. And, she, and she like she's like, oh, I'm from Michigan. I'll take you guys. Like, and she took us to a, like a camp up there hmm. and like took us like tubing and like playing the snow and all that stuff. So it was amazing. Like, like she did a lot of stuff like that. She opened us up to like a lot of new stuff that we had never done before. And then she was biking out on Labor Day and uh, got hit by a car. She'd been out with her partner, Rob, early in the morning on a tandem bicycle. They were hit by a fast-moving truck and threw them about 50 feet through the air. Clearwater police were still searching for the driver who hit their bike on Labor Day and took off. It was a hit and run, so technically they don't know if he was drunk, Mm -hmm. but he was working at a bar. And you could, like, there's, like, video footage of him, like, drinking all night. And he was driving home at, like, 5 in the morning. Like, after his shift? Yeah. So it was very sudden. And and at the time, I was, like, really upset with her. Had been really upset with her. Apparently, in the weeks leading up to the accident, Shannon had felt some distance growing between her and Hillary. Shannon thought Hillary was sort of replacing her with another young girl in the group. It seemed like she chose more to spend time with that girl, and she had grown closer to that girl. And I was jealous, pretty much. Closer than she was with you. Yeah. I felt like I had been pushed to the side. So I was very upset. And, you know, literally that day, I had been talking to mom about it and about how I was so mad at her. And like two hours later, it was, oh, she's in the hospital and she's in a coma. She and my mom went to the hospital as soon as they heard. The same hospital my mom works at. The same hospital where Shannon was born. 
Hillary was in a coma and not in good physical shape, so they didn't want the kids to go in and see her. Um, but they told us, they're like, if you guys want to write her a letter, we'll leave it with her. <laughs> and I didn't write one because I didn't know what to say. Literally, like, three hours ago, I was complaining and just being so mad at this person. And now there's a possibility I'm never going to see them again. I felt so guilty. The next month was like really hard. We were hoping that she would wake up and that everything would be fine, but obviously she didn't. Rob died the day of the accident. Hillary died two weeks later. The guy who hit them turned himself in and is currently serving an 11-year prison sentence. At the trial, the judge said to him, quote, there's nothing that ever happens in court that can take away the pain of all the people involved. Your family has lost you for an extended period of time but not forever. I knew this had been hard for Shannon. She couldn't leave home for college because the anxiety got so bad. She even had trouble going to the grocery store alone or going through drive-thrus. It's like, now I don't even want to leave the house without, like, I don't want to talk to anyone. And then I was just, like, really upset with, like, myself. What do you mean? I don't like... I just didn't like myself. Like, I didn't like who I was. What? Like, in what ways? I just, I didn't want to be me anymore. Like, I wanted to wake up and be someone else. I was just upset that I couldn't, in my opinion, function like a normal human being. Like, I couldn't go to the mall and, and buy things or, like, go to a freaking summer camp on my own. Like, I felt so, like, dependent on people, and I hated that. And And I remember, like, telling mom about it, like laying in bed one night. And it was just like, I don't want to be here anymore. And like, like I didn't want to exist. Like, I didn't want to do anything to myself. Like, I didn't want to hurt myself or anything mm -hmm. like that. But I did not want to wake up in the morning. Like, I would, like, pray that I would just not wake up. There's this thing with the younger siblings where it's almost like they're preserved in amber in your mind. There are ways in which Shannon still feels like the nine-year-old who would crack open my bedroom door and try to spy on me and my high school girlfriend. Silly. Sneaky. But hearing her describe this loneliness, it's like she's transforming right in front of me. Like the amber is melting away, and I'm finally seeing how much time has passed. And it occurs to me that for years, I haven't just ignored Shannon. I've reduced her to a smaller version of who she actually is. Shannon has asked me to interview her time and again. She's said that if someone were to look at my life based on the stories I've told, it's like she doesn't exist. She knows I interview people I find interesting and that I tell stories about people who go on adventures, face challenges, do incredible things. People like Matthew McGill. It seems so obvious now but I think Shannon was just asking me to give her the same courtesy I was giving Matthew, to be interested enough in her life to ask her some questions. Sitting there, I'm a little embarrassed. She had to share her most painful stuff in order to get my attention. And it makes me think about what else might be happening with my family. What else I haven't asked about. I'm really glad we talked about this. Mm -hmm. I wish we talked about it sooner. 
Mm-hmm. It'd be a really deep conversation to have like over the phone. Shannon and I wrap up. I'm grateful to her, and I do feel genuinely closer. But before we shut off the mics, she is sure to let me know. She is the person in my family most likely to be open with me. But if I want to close some distance between folks, the real work is still ahead. With my brother. I feel like if, if there's anyone who in the family who doesn't like talk, it's Danny. I feel like he never talks about his emotions. He keeps to himself a whole lot. He's a black box. What's inside the black box? It's even more surprising. That's after the break. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. And I want to tell you about a podcast I think you're going to love. Who Weekly is a podcast about everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Does celebrity news stress you out? Are there too many people you've literally never heard of? Check out Who Weekly, a podcast hosted by Lindsay Weber and me, Bobby Finger. Each episode goes deep into the biggest who celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we'll answer the most burning listener queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly on the Odyssey app or wherever else you get your podcasts. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now, I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully, no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Could you tell me what you had for breakfast? What you had for breakfast this morning? Nothing. I don't eat breakfast. Really? Yeah. Why not? I just don't. My brother Danny is many things. He is good with kids and happy to help with an errand. He is very tall and very blonde. Growing up, people would call him George Washington because of his almost white curly hair. He loves Stephen King and has annual passes to Disney World. He's even got a tattoo of Jafar on his leg. Danny is many things, but verbose is not one of those things. I've never opened up. I don't talk about my feelings. What <laughs> marks around feelings? Yeah, I, I did. I, I don't know. It's it was never open. I was just never out there. I hid in my room all the time. Danny's 28 here, about two years younger than me. And he and I have had a mostly good, if quiet, relationship. We like each other. We get along. We fought as kids in the way that brothers fight. One time he threw a toy eyeball at me, missed, and sent it busting through the living room window. But as far as I can tell, there are not deep, lingering resentments between us. We only talk once or twice a year when we're in the same place, and we don't usually talk about anything terribly intimate. So I'm a little surprised when, the minute I put a microphone in front of him, literally 52 seconds after pressing record, he starts in, unprompted, with this. I've never felt like a favorite. Shannon is mom's favorite, your dad's favorite. Now, I used to be dad's favorite when we were younger. Huh. Yeah. But now I feel like that's changed. I don't exactly know why he brings this up. 
Danny is easygoing. I've almost never seen him ruffle a feather. But it's clear to me pretty quickly that he's never been asked about this stuff. And he's never really talked about it. It's like I've pulled a knot out of a hose that's been turned on and backing up for years. He seems ready to let it all out. I don't want to say I didn't feel included in the family, but like, I think it might be because I've always felt secluded or I've always secluded myself that it doesn't bother me, that I don't have a great relationship with either of them. He said it's going to be a therapy session and I'm going to learn about myself. What's that? It's going to be a therapy session and I'm going to learn about myself. It doesn't have to be. I know. But it's also, I've also told myself I need to go see a therapist. Why? I got issues. Really? Yeah. I feel like I have a lot of issues that I've never, I don't know how to express. And I just never have. I feel like something's wrong, but I don't know what it is. Huh. It's weird. I feel like I was depressed in high school. What made you think you were depressed in high school? I don't think I ever truly felt happy. This is going to get pretty deep. And like, I don't think I've even told mom or dad this. I don't think they ever knew. It's like, I, I cut some in high school. Not to the point anywhere where I knew it would kill me. But like, I have a few like scars up on my upper shoulder. I had no idea. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm pretty sure no one did. In high school? Yeah. Junior, senior year. Really? Yeah. What was going on? So, this is something I know you don't know. Shannon doesn't know either. Mom and dad know. This is one of the things I've wanted to talk to you and Shannon about. But it's... I've never wanted to be open with it because of the way other things turned out. But um, do you remember... He tells me the name of an old girlfriend. Mm -hmm. So I got her pregnant. Okay. We put the kid up for adoption. Okay. Mom and dad didn't know. Mom didn't find out until he was like four or five. So this would have been six years ago or so. It was when I told mom. Okay. She told dad shortly after. Uh-huh. Um, so I went through like the adoption and all that stuff this is without you, anyone. When you were in high school. Yeah. It would have been my junior year. He was born 2008. Wow. Yeah. Got her pregnant when I was a junior. He was born senior year. Wow. Yeah. Danny has one leg resting on the other. His foot is bouncing. I can see the scar on his shin from when we were playing with a hot glue gun as kids. I can see the little lump from when he was throwing batting practice and they hit a line drive right back at him. Left him bruised for weeks. Why did he feel like he needed to keep this secret from me for so long? What was he worried about? Turns out Danny did not know his girlfriend was pregnant until after they had broken up. He says it was a couple months after they split that she reached out to him. She texted me telling me that she was pregnant. And at first I didn't think it was mine. I'm like, you know, are you sure it's mine? She's like, yeah, it's only gonna be yours. That was a text that came to you? Yeah. Were you scared? Kind of, probably, most likely. Did you guys know right away you wanted to have the baby and put it up for adoption? Can you just like walk me through the yeah. process? I'm sorry, I just don't know no. anything about yeah, that. No, this no, is not yeah. like meant to be judgment. I'm just like no, actually I know, very yeah. curious. Like I, I said, I, I know you know nothing. I, I mean, yeah. unless mom or dad told you. No. But, um, Danny says the adoption agency his ex was working with contacted him to get everything set up. Hey, I'm contacting you about the baby coming up. You know, we have papers that need to be signed. We can do it at your house. We can meet up somewhere. It doesn't matter. We just need to have at least one witness. She's like, if you want to provide the witness, you can. If you want me to provide the witness, I can do that too. Mm-hmm. So it's like I told her she can because I essentially wanted to keep the secret. So like she contacted me and we ended up meeting up at a Panera. 
Do you remember the the person you met at the Panera, what they were like? And it was a female. Her daughter was the witness. How old was her daughter? 16-ish, probably. She's like your age. Yeah, it was roughly my age. Wow. So, like, here I am signing away parental rights next to someone my age. And it's like, it was was a weird thing. That was weird. Yeah. At a Panera. At a Panera. Uh, The Bardmore Panera. Yeah, I've had a lot of lunches there. This is a weird question. Did you eat anything? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't think so. Okay. Sorry. That's I just like I think I got a drink and that was it. Um, okay. Yeah. Wow. You never know what's going on at a table across from you. Yeah. I mean, especially Panera. I don't know what he means by especially Panera, but it is literally the only phrase I can think of every time I drive by one now. Do you know if he was adopted? He was. Um, I actually have pictures. That's what I was looking up right now. There's a picture of him. This is when he was either what? two and a half or three. My brother pulls out his phone, scrolls through his email, and passes it over to me. Oh, my God. I think that's one of the last pictures I ever got of him. From who? Um, the adoptive parents. The kid in the photo looks remarkably like Danny when he was little. The photo was taken at some Disney resort. It was an open adoption, Danny tells me. So there was an understanding he would get occasional updates on how the child was doing. So at first, they were really good about every couple months sending pictures. Oh, my gosh. And it was roughly when, um, after he turned three, was the last time that I've seen a picture. He's tall. Yeah. One of the um, first emails they sent is that, like, he's in, like, the 99th percentile for, like, high or something like that. Like, it's, I'm like, well, I would hope so. Wow. That's crazy. Have, yeah. have mom or dad seen this photo? Yeah. And this is from six years ago now. Yeah. Wow. And it's weird, too, because, like, knowing that they go to Disney, I have those weird moments to where, like, with how often Sam and I go to Disney. It's like... Sam is my brother's girlfriend now. Have I ever been there when he's there? So, like, it's that weird mental thing of, like, is there a chance that I've seen him and I don't even realize that I've seen him? Wow. Sorry. No. This is not how I expected this conversation (laughs) to go. I'm just, like, staring at him. If my conversation with Shannon was surprising, I don't really know what to call this. It honestly never occurred to me my siblings could be carrying around such incredibly heavy things, and I would not know about it. And then, Danny leans over and pulls his wallet out of his pocket. There's a picture of the kid in there, he tells me. He's been carrying it around every day for years. What's that like? I have been completely submerged in a box full of things that belong to a guy I never met. And the whole time, my brother has kept his biggest thing in his pocket. And I had no idea. Danny did tell a couple close friends about the adoption when it happened. But they didn't keep it secret, and rumors spread a little around his school. He got nervous, embarrassed. So he stopped telling anyone, including my parents. Who, at this point, were just a few years away from divorcing. I feel like at this time I could already tell things were really bad between mom and dad. And I feel like this would have been added stress. And especially if they're like, you know, if if it would have been turned into like where they wanted to like me to keep the kid and take care of the kid. I didn't want the added stress on them for that. Really? So I feel like I put that all on my shoulders to keep it like away from them. Yeah. I think it's, with all that going on, I didn't want to keep him for the simple fact I knew someone out there that actually wanted a child would have been better than what we could have given him. Yeah. I didn't want to bring it upon the family. 
You thought about that, like it would have this huge effect on the family. Oh, yeah. I've hidden this from a lot of people. A few years ago, the adoption agency Danny and his ex worked with closed down, and the family who adopted the child fell out of touch. Danny's still trying to decide whether or not to reestablish contact. He really misses the updates, thinks about them all the time, but he also doesn't want to disrupt a family. I'm still wondering how Danny could not have told me, but also, when would he have? In the two or three days a year when we saw each other? I left, and then I stopped coming back, and I never called. I created a scenario where it was all but impossible for him to tell me. Thank you for sharing all this. I'm really sorry you felt like you couldn't until now. Mm. It's, uh, Don't shrug. <laughs> it's, it's, it's my habit. Um, no, I mean, it's... I don't know. I, I honestly have no reason, don't know why. I just got to the point of shutting off. I feel like it just started and it just never stopped. Danny heads home and I drive to pick up some Thai food. I call a friend who I told I was interviewing my family, and I explain everything that just happened. She's gobsmacked and has a million follow-up questions. I don't have many answers. And then she says this thing that still sticks with me, even today. What a gift, she says, to be able to have that conversation. What a gift. It's so hard to know the kinds of pain people are carrying around with them, even the people you share so much with, perhaps especially those people. I know what it's like to be lonely. I know what it's like to be embarrassed, to want to hide, and to close yourself off from the people you care about. I know what it's like to worry the truth will hurt them. I'm just shocked my siblings and I were all feeling that stuff so deeply at the same time. And none of us knew it about the others. There were still two people I needed to talk to. And to the extent I grew up and ran away from home, they're the people I was running away from. I needed to talk with my parents. That's next. Stay Away From Matthew McGill was created by me, Eric Mennel, at Pineapple Street Studios. It's produced by Elliot Adler and me, edited by Joel Lovell and Hilary Frank, with editing help from Lisa Pollack. The executive producers at Pineapple Street are Jenna Weiss-Berman and Max Linsky. Fact-checking and research by Sarah Ivory, mixing by Hannes Brown, production management by Grace Chen, social by Hadim Jang, 
Marketing and visuals by Kurt Courtney, Josephina Francis, Melissa Wester, and Hilary Shoup at Cadence 13. Special thanks to Caitlin Jamo, unlicensed podcast therapist, Rachel Ward. Early reporting for this project was supported by Gimlet Media, original scoring by Blank Forms and S. Carey. Our credit song, On the Cusp, is by the band Any Kind. This show is a co-production of Pineapple Street Studios and Odyssey. Odyssey is home for all the podcasts, music, news, and sports audio that matters to you. That's A-U-D-A-C-Y. You can download it for free on the App Store or on Google Play. That's Odyssey. A-U-D-A-C-Y.